Good morning. Get myself all sorted out here. I have to look nice today because I'm about to show you a terribly unflattering picture of myself. Get ready. I don't show this picture to a lot of people. Um, my name is Dana, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, this is me in grade five. Here it comes. You can kind of find me. I'm in the front row, the second from the end with the frilly socks. And that weird stripey thing down my sweater. I don't know what that is. The 90s have for, are forever condemning my fashion sense here. I was 10 in this picture. This is grade five. And I want to tell you a couple of things about me in the fifth grade. This is what you should know. I was very smart um, and an excellent student. I'm not, I'm not bragging. <laughs> I just, that's, that's how it was. Um, I followed the rules and I did not get in trouble. And the truth is that I was a little bit insecure about that. I was super insecure about that. Um, you know, they take the class pictures at the start of the year. But later that year, I got glasses, and that was that season where they were, like, making you magnify your cheeks as well as your eyes, and they were purple things, and it was, I was not a good year. <laughs> so I got these huge glasses I wasn't used to. I wasn't very good at sports, and I wanted to fit in with the popular girls so badly. The popular girls are these four girls right here. It's nice that they all got to sit together in the picture. I don't know why that happened. I knew they were popular because they all had 10-speed bikes, and they all claimed to have already French-kissed boys, although nobody could tell us exactly what that meant, and so it was unclear if it was true. Um, and then this girl right here, Marlene, uh, she was not very popular, and the truth is I don't really know why. Like, it seems sort of arbitrary to me when I think back on it now. How on earth did we decide when we were 10 who was going to be in and who wasn't? But Marlene was not. She was funny and kind and generally pretty fun to be around, but she was not popular. And one day while we were in class doing a group project, um, one of these girls in the front, one of the popular girls, uh, made a sign to stick on Marlene's back. I don't really know what it said, probably kick me or something because we weren't that creative, but um, she had the sign ready and there's tape on it and they were having this conversation together about how to get it on her back without her noticing. And I leaned in and said, you know, I bet I could do it because we're friends and she likes me so she wouldn't suspect anything. And I did. I put the sign kind of on my hand and I walked up to her and I asked her some kind of question and we're chatting for a minute and I kind of patted her on the back and then I walked away and there it was. It was super easy. And of course then over the next few minutes people start to notice and they are making comments and laughing and she finds the note and starts to cry and the teacher stops the class and, and makes us all sit down and wants to know who did that. And no one answered. And so she kept the entire class in for recess. You know, and we're there until someone confesses. And I remember my face burning, you know, and feeling like nauseous and really like very close to crying. And so eventually I stood up and confessed. 
And I told the teacher, like, look, I didn't write it, uh, but I put it there. And I remember Marlene's face just crumbling, right, because she thought we were friends. Like, up until that moment, we had been friends. And then, if you can imagine, I made it worse, because instead of just coming clean and then apologizing, I started talking. And I started to talk about how mean Marlene was, and she used bad words, and she wouldn't let other kids play games at recess, and I just went on and on. And none of that was true, but I was a good kid. Like, my word was pretty trustworthy in that class, and so the teacher believed me. Like, I just literally stood up in all my arrogant 10-year-old glory and made a case for why this girl deserved what I had just done to her. And the teacher, like, I don't know if she bought it really or if she was just too tired to deal with it that day, but she let us go. She gave us a little talking to and and then let the class go outside for recess. And I have no idea what everybody else did, but I just, like, sat down behind the portable and sobbed. I could not believe I had done that to my friend. And it's still, like, I haven't thought about this class, of course. I haven't thought about this class in years um, till I was getting ready for this. And it's one of the things still that I'm the most, I'm just, I'm so ashamed of that in my life. In this series leading up to Lent, we've been looking at the final few weeks of Jesus' life. And trying to learn the lessons that he was wanting to teach his disciples before he was gone. And last week we found them gathered together around the table for the Passover meal. And Jesus started washing the disciples' feet. He's trying to teach them how to serve one another. The story that we're looking at this week picks up right on the heels of that. They're still at the table. They're having the same meal. And I'm going to read verses 18 to 20 for us. You have this insert in your bulletin, so you can follow along. It kind of helps. This is verses 18 to 20. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now because, or before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. I find Jesus a little rambly here at the beginning, if I'm being honest, right? I'm like, um, what are you talking about? Tell us what you're saying. But it's because he's leading up to this thing that's kind of awful, right? He's getting ready to say, one of you will betray me. And I think he knows that once they hear that, they are not going to be able to focus on anything else. So he starts with some caveats for them. So I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I think it sounds sort of like, I know you guys. I know your hearts. And what I'm about to say isn't for all of you, I get that, but it is happening so that we can fulfill the scripture. And I want you to know it's coming. In fact, I want you to know that I know that it's coming, so that when it happens, you'll be even more convinced of who I am. And by the way, you guys need to know, no matter what happens, you're part of me now. 
You belong to me. In fact, from now on, when people accept you, they'll be accepting me and my father. We're together, you and I. But listen, here's the thing. Because that's what you do when you have bad news. You kind of work your way up to it. One of you will betray me. And they're shocked, right? Just stunned into silence. They start like looking at each other and not sure and kind of checking their own hearts. They can't really take it in. But one of them for sure wants to know who it is. It's always Peter, right? If I was there, I would be Peter for sure. He's always the one who speaks up. Now, I have learned my whole life, I thought that this next little part happened right out loud and everybody heard it. This is like on your paper. It's verses 24 to 26. I thought that was out loud. But as I've been studying it this week, I don't think that's true. Because if it had been spoken out loud, then nobody would be confused about what Judas was doing later on, and they are confused. So I think that this next part kind of happens quietly. I think they're sitting at a table like this. And in this picture, I imagine that Peter is going to be this guy right here with his back to us with the white. And the disciple that Jesus loved, who is traditionally thought to be John, who's the author, is the guy who's like right up next to Jesus, like leaning on his shoulder. So just so we know who we're talking about. So they're sitting at the table, and Peter, I think, when he hears this, one of you will betray me, he kind of catches John's eye across the table, or he kicks him under there, or throws something or something. But he gets his attention, and he mouths to him like, find out who it is. Ask him. And so then, while everybody else is grumbling and wondering what's going on, John leans over to Jesus and says, who is it? And Jesus doesn't quite tell him, but he does say, okay, it's the one I'm going to give this bread to. And so he dips the bread and he hands it to Jesus. And that now means at least three things. On the one hand, when the teacher hands you the bread at the table, that is sort of an honoring thing. So it's a way of affirming and honoring, communicating respect for, Jesus, for Judas in front of his friends. It's kind of amazing. It also, I wonder might be like a final kind of plea from Jesus. You know, like he hands this guy the bread and he gets real close to him and they get to make eye contact and it's a bit of an invitation for him to remember, like to ask, do you want to really do this? Do you want to reconsider? And then finally for John at least, and maybe for Peter later on, I mean, that's the sign. Right? When Jesus hands the bread to Judas, they know he's the one who's going to betray our teacher. The author's interpretation is that as he eats the bread, Satan enters him. And then he leaves the table. And people are confused about where he's going. But we know from later in the story that what he does is go and find the chief priests and sells his teacher for 30 pieces of silver. And back at the table, Jesus has a little bit more to say. He tells the rest of the disciples, the other 11, that it's time now for him to be glorified. He's used that language before, and what it means is that it's time for him to suffer and die. Jesus always connects his glory with his suffering and death. 
always. And even on this side of it, when we know what's coming, it's still very hard to figure that out, to understand why the glory is connected with the suffering. But he knows his purpose. He's always known that he came to sacrifice himself to restore people's relationship with God. That's what he's here to do. And so God's ultimate work is about to take place. And no matter what that looks like, all the beatings and the blood and the death that are coming, this is Jesus' glory. He is about to be glorified. And as he tells them, he pairs the glory with the reality of his unexplained absence. Because pretty soon, like within days, he's going to be gone. They won't see him anymore. And the glory bit might have been exciting for them because they are notorious for forgetting that it's connected to suffering and death. But the absence part is disturbing. Remember, they have followed him every day for three years. For three years, every day, they went where he went, they ate what he ate, they slept where he slept. That's all they know. When he called them, he would say, come and see. Come and follow me. And now tonight, all of a sudden, he's literally saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. That's a hard word. He gives them a new command. Instead, love each other, just like he did with the foot washing. He's asking them to follow his example and love one another like he did. That's his exhortation in the face of what's to come. He's saying, this is about to get ugly and hard. And here's what I want you to do, okay? Love each other, seriously. See how I'm loving you? Do that for one another. Because, you know, you guys, even in these few minutes in this story, Jesus is loving them so well. It's kind of crazy. Like, watch what he does next with Peter. Peter is stuck on why he can't follow Jesus anymore, right? Where are you going? Peter, you can't come now. You're going to come later. Why not? Why can't I come now? I'll do anything for you. I'll die for you. And I picture Jesus so gentle at this moment. Like, Peter is charged right up, right? He is mad. He is confused. He's, he wants to fight. He's ready to go. But Jesus' eyes get super soft. Will you? Really, my friend? Will you die for me? Look, I wonder if he had tears in his eyes. I wonder if he reached out to touch Peter on the cheek. Because Jesus knows this piece of information that Peter cannot even imagine. And he has to tell his friend, you're going to disown me, dear one. You're going to pretend you don't even know me three times before the morning. That must have broken Peter's heart. It's the irony or maybe the beauty of these moments that while he's facing his own suffering and death, 
Jesus can still minister so deeply to his friends. Even though they're the ones who are about to betray him, and he knows it. Jesus knows that Peter is worried and scared that night. He knows that this man has been 100% committed to him and the mission of God since he called him out of the fishing boat three years ago. He knows how much Peter really does love him and that he has every intention of doing the right thing. He also knows that Peter is going to panic in a few hours, terrified for his own safety, and claim he's never even met Jesus. Andy knows how much Peter will hate that he did that. He'll despise himself for that moment of weakness. So Jesus leans in close, and he loves his friend. This is an incredible act. It is not, by the way, how I would have handled that moment. I know it's going to be shocking to you that I do not respond exactly like Jesus. But I hate betrayal. (laughs) I don't even like when people think poorly of me when it's undeserved or when it is. You know, like I just, I can't handle it. I have this woman who I meet with every week. And um, she struggles a lot with her physical health and her mental health and... um, Life is a challenge for her, and she is a prickly woman at the best of times. And so once a week, I pick her up and drive her around, and we do some errands together. It's a small thing I can do. For a few months, I've been going every week on Mondays, but I switched my day off to Monday recently, and so I sat down with her and explained that and asked if we could move our errand day to Wednesday instead of Monday. No problem. The first week was totally fine, went off without a hitch. The second week, she forgot. So at 11.30 on Monday morning, I got a phone call. I answer the phone, and it's just yelling and screaming and crying. Like, I could not get a word in edgewise. She's just screaming. But the gist of the conversation was that I was over an hour late to pick her up. I had forgotten about her, broken my word. I was just like every other person in her life, selfish and abandoning her as soon as I could except there was more swearing, and then she hung up. Now, actually, on Monday, I was off work and feeling kind of crappy, still kind of recovering from the flu, and so this was not my favorite phone call. And it was a good thing that she hung up because I was mad. And so I sat at my kitchen table fuming, trying to decide what to do. This was not my fault. I was going to see her on Wednesday like we had planned. And furthermore, I have gone to see her faithfully every week for almost four months. How dare she think this of me? I don't deserve to be treated like that. Except that the week before that happened, I set an appointment to go and meet with Jan Saker, had every intention of going, Completely and totally forgot. No reason, no excuses. I just forgot, and I didn't show up. I didn't even think about it until I found the sticky note on my desk, six hours too late to do anything about it. So thank goodness Jan was more gracious with me, but that's awful. 
I have such good intentions. And then pretty often, like shockingly often, I just utterly fail. I just can't do it. And I am so glad, I'm so glad that I don't know in advance that I'm going to fail that way. It would have broken my heart to know when I set the appointment that I was going to forget to go visit Jan. And I'm very glad that I don't know in advance that someone else is going to do that to me because how would I ever look this woman in the face if I knew she was going to bite my head off the next time I talked to her? And those examples aren't even really the big things, are they? The trail happens every day. People spread rumors about us. Our parents get divorced and walk out. Our partner spends all the savings on an addiction. We find out our husband is using pornography or our wife is sleeping with someone else. Or we're getting beat up at school and our friends just walk away. I am telling you, Jesus knows what that's like. His friends sold him to dirty politicians who are trying to have him killed. And then while he was on trial for something he didn't do, his best friend pretended not to know him. Jesus is so like us in knowing what betrayal feels like and then so unlike us in his response. Because in that moment, he encourages them and reassures them. He helps them interpret what's coming. He respects their choices, even the terrible ones. And he tells them the way to get through everything is to love each other. How do you respond when someone betrays you? How have people responded when you betrayed them? Was it like Jesus, super gentle, leaning into Peter? (laughs) Maybe not. It's the tenderness he shows in the face of clarity and truth that gets me. He's not fooled by Peter. He sees Peter clearly, and I think he's hurt by what's going to happen. It's just that he loves him so much. I'm reading Romans right now, and the other day I found this familiar verse, but it really caught me. And I, you know, like you do, went back and read it five or six times in a row. Uh, It's chapter 5 and verse uh, 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Three times the author of Romans points this thing out. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners. See, we think that we have to get cleaned up before we come to God, before we'd have an, he'd have, have anything to do with us. I mean, maybe we kind of know in theory that that's not true, but we sure behave like it is. We try to be good. We try to be better. We try to have our purpose settled. We try to be put together. 
we try to be reconciled, then maybe he'll love me. No. No. It is not like that. It doesn't work like that. He loves us now. Just like this. Whatever it is. Whatever you're worried about. He loves you. Last week, Tom read us this verse from John that says, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loves so utterly and completely, nothing can touch it. His identity is secure with the Father, so he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need reassurance or affirmation from you. He doesn't even need you not to betray him. He loves you. He loved them through it, through this night, through the betrayal and denial, as they are in that moment at the table and will continue to be. Selfish, weak, and all the rest of it, he loved them to the end. So much so, he chose death for their sake. And he loves us the same way. I read a poem for you during Advent that I'm going to read again. It's called Broken Record by a Jesuit father, Michael Monahan. And it says this. Grandparenting God, you see our sin as symptomatic stutter. Self-effacing struggle to ignore the confounding reality of your willful vulnerability. I love you because I can't do anything else. I made you. Every last part of you, all that's hidden and all that's revealed, all that's muddled, and even all that's clear, you are, at the risk of repeating myself, dear to me. You're precious in my eyes because, just because you're mine, that's enough for me, and it will have to do for you. Wrestle with it until you get tired and then relax and give in. Take a deep breath and enjoy. Listen, he is not asking you to get cleaned up first. He loves you because he can't do anything else, because you are his. He does ask them to do one thing, love one another. It's one of the hardest moments of his time with them so far, because one is going to betray him. Death is so close he can taste it. He has to leave this community that he loves. Peter is going to disown him. And he tells them, this is the way through. This is the new command, the most important thing. You have to love each other. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, what would that look like? What would it be like to love the people in your life this way? Love them such that, Even when you can see pain coming, you touch them tenderly and speak life to them. Love them such that even when they're making choices you don't agree with and you know you're going to have to pick up the pieces of that mess, you let them go and you welcome them back. That sounds unwise, doesn't it? Sounds like a recipe for getting stepped on and walked over. It's true. And to the lovely person I lent the boundaries book to this week, I still believe in boundaries. But 
When I was in the downtown east side in 2006, we were staying in um, an SRO. It's a single residence occupancy hotel, which is a form of extremely basic social housing. And it was a disaster. I mean, there are needles and crack pipes everywhere, and everything is filthy and broken, and there's garbage all over the hall. And one day, our group of students was asked to clean up. And so we spent an afternoon doing all the chores that no one does in a place like that. And I was washing walls with a couple of other women. And at some point during the afternoon, we realized that what we were scrubbing off the walls was blood and human excrement. And my friend Julie stopped and she said, this is so gross. But... It's like this, isn't it, the gospel? I mean, if you're going to help someone get clean, you're going to have to be willing to absorb their shit. Try not to be too worried that I said that in church. Because I'm telling you that that word has shaped my life in ministry. It's costly, and it looks unwise. But if you're going to love someone enough to help them find new life, you are going to have to be willing to absorb some shit. There's no other way to do it. Most people aren't willing to do that, really. We have a very low tolerance for mistakes and betrayal. Which I think is why Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He wants his disciples to be so entirely committed to this radical, self-sacrificing, shit-absorbing love that people can tell right away who they are. Pretty often Christians end up loving, we learn to love, based on just normal expectations of the culture we grew up in. Right? We learn how to love based on whatever everybody else around us thinks is normal love. Listen to me. That is not good enough. It's not. Not if you're following Jesus. The invitation is to relearn love. Relearn how much to give. Relearn how radically to serve. Relearn how often you forgive someone and whether you go back and visit. And don't learn from TV or Facebook. Don't learn from Brene Brown, a self-help author. Don't even learn from your family, not even if they were pretty good at it. Learn from Jesus. Let him be your inspiration. Be your security as you do it, your teacher and your guide. This is the challenge I want to leave you with today. As you drive home, I want you to turn to whoever's in the car with you. Don't wait for your spouse to do this. Okay? It's not their responsibility. Don't avoid it because you have kids in the car. Turn to whoever is in the car with you and ask, how do you think we could love more like Jesus in our home? What do we need to relearn? And then I want to encourage you to print Romans 5, 6, and 8 somewhere you can see it this week. Maybe you're going to put it on the fridge. Maybe you're going to put it on the mirror. Maybe you're going to put a sticky note on your computer screen at work. 
But I want you to remember that Jesus loves you before you get put together. I want you, I can't remember really whether it was 24 or 48 hours later that I was so um, overcome by what I had done to Marlene that I kind of cornered her on the playing field at recess and apologized. I just, I just cried and told her how sorry I was and begged her to forgive me, and she did. And I'm sure that I did some terrible damage to her, but we were able to be friends again. <clears throat> And on Monday, I finally calmed down enough to decide that I would try to make things right with my friend. So I called her back. And it took three separate tries because every time she saw it was my name on the phone, she'd pick up the phone yelling and screaming and then hang up before I could say anything. But we did finally manage to talk. And I explained the misunderstanding. And this is the boundary I set. I calmly and firmly told her I didn't want her to scream at me anymore. But she was more than welcome to call and ask me questions anytime I was late or she was worried I wasn't coming. She was kind of like gruff and teary at the same time. She was, hmm, well, well, sorry. And then suddenly and really quietly she said, well, I mean, are you, are you still going to come on Wednesday? course I'm going to come on Wednesday. That's when I come. I'm going to play a song um, for a few minutes, and you're welcome to stay where you are and just listen. But I'd like you, while it's playing, to make your way up to the front, and I have some sticky notes and pens on the altar up here, and I'd like you to take the opportunity to write down these questions that you're going to ask in the car and not wait for someone else to ask you. And to write down this uh, scripture from Romans so that you can stick it somewhere and remember it. Hear this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let that soak into you as you go about the business of good intentions and moderate success and wild failure this week. You are loved now, and you are loved through. You are loved to the end. Let's listen to this song. Will your grace run out if I let you down? Because I'm not afraid. 
be here and there's sticky notes on the tables at the back too let me pray for you before you go Jesus the truth is I am a sinner and if it's not one thing it's another (laughs) all the way from being 10 years old doing this terrible thing to my friend to missing appointments last week when I had the best intentions I'm so sorry And I am so grateful that you're a savior, that you take brokenness aside and make it beautiful, that you are willing and able and eager to love now, love no matter what. 
And so I pray that we would be transformed by that love, that we would take it in, that it would root us in who we are as your children. And I pray that you would increase our capacity to love one another so that everyone would know that we are yours by the way we love. We ask that for our salvation and for your glory. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Go in peace.